Hello folks, I want to welcome you to our adult Sunday school time. And we are doing a survey through the Old Testament. And we're up to the books of 1st and 2nd Kings, 2nd Chronicles. And we've entitled this section of our study, this series of our study, uh, Israel's Kings and Prophets. So we're in lesson seven today, and we've seen so far the reign of Solomon, his sin, which resulted in God saying that he was going to take 10 tribes away from the kingdom to start their own kingdom. However, Benjamin would remain with Judah and the house of David. And we looked at the kingdom dividing in lesson six and saw primarily the first two rulers of that divided kingdom, Jeroboam in the north, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon in the south. Now, we're going to progress today in lesson seven and really for the most part all through 1 Kings and into part of 2 Kings where we see basically the writer switching between, in Kings at least, between the two kingdoms, between the kingdom in the north, which is Israel or called Israel and which would be called Samaria later, and the southern kingdom of Judah, which is where the house of David was. And so we're going to focus our attention there. Now, 2 Chronicles presents it a little bit different because 2 Chronicles is not concerned with the northern kingdom, but is concerned with the house of David. So when we look at material from 2 Chronicles, it is primarily going to be, mainly going to be, issues concerning the house of David and David's descendants who are the kings. So let's get right into it today. We're going to talk about the kings of Judah first. We're going to look at two today, Abijah and Asa. And then we're going to shift, because the text shifts, to the northern kingdom. And we're going to see a series of kings that happen. And it's not all good. So let's start, first of all, with the whole issue of the kingdom of Judah. Now, again, there's a lot of material here, so we're not going to be reading through the scripture. But... I uh, would like for you to look at it on your own so you can see how the narrative is going. But let's take a look and talk about what it's saying today. All right, so when you come to 1 Kings chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, or 2 Chronicles chapter 13, verses 1 to 22, uh, it talks about Abijah. So Abijah became king of Judah during the 18th year of Jeroboam. All right, so the writer is trying to overlap the kingdoms to tell us when exactly they became king and when they didn't. So Abijah, his father, would be Rehoboam, died. Abijah becomes king. Well, that would be his first year, Abijah's first year. But at the same time, in the northern kingdom is Jeroboam. He's still alive. Now, last week we saw that he dies. But in the northern kingdom, Jeroboam is in the 18th year of his reign. And Abijah becomes king. Now, he reigned three years in Jerusalem. And Makkah, a daughter of Absalom, was his mother. Now, it's very interesting because both with Abijah and we'll see with Asa, this woman is mentioned. And we're going to see that she's not a good woman, but she is the daughter of, of Absalom, who if you remember, was killed by Joab's men because of his rebellion against David. Now, I think it's interesting that Abijah only reigned three years. So he's only ruler over 
Judah for three years over the southern kingdom. Now, it's interesting because you're going to see this designation within both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. He walked, it says, Abijah walked in, ev in the evil ways of his father and did not walk in the ways of David. Now, that's primarily a designation that he didn't do right. He wasn't right with God. He did evil. And when you talk about the northern kingdom, which we're going to get to here soon, every one of those kings did evil in the sight of the Lord. And some of them were really bad, and we're going to see that again today as well. So here's Abijah. He's walking in the evil ways of his father, because we saw that Rehoboam did evil. And so he's walking in the ways of his father, and he chooses not to walk in the ways of his his uh, great-grandfather, David. Now, you would say, now why is the Lord putting up with this? Well, the writer wants to remind us that the Lord had promised David that he would have a son on the throne after him. This is all in fulfillment of a promise in the Davidic covenant that he would establish David as an eternal household. And there would always be a king on the throne in Judah. And so the, the writer is pointing this out. Even though this king has done evil in the sight of the Lord, this is, he's allowed to reign because of the promise made to David. Now the text then moves on to talk about the battle between the north and the south. Between the kingdom of the north, Israel, and the kingdom of the south, Judah. And it says that Abijah met Jeroboam in battle with 400,000 men against 800,000 men from Israel. So it's kind of lopsided. They're in a battle where the odds are two to one against them. Abijah called out and rebuked the northern kingdom for its sin. Now, this is very interesting. You're like, wow, it says that he walked in the ways of his father, in the evil ways. Why is he doing this? Well, he is. He's rebuking. Pretty big section there about pointing out the sins of Israel and the sins that they have committed. Now, Jeroboam surprised Judah in the battle, and they cried out to the Lord for deliverance. So basically, Jeroboam had set his men to come up from behind Abijah's army, as well as in the front, and they were basically caught in the middle. So the men cried out to God for deliverance. I think this is interesting. At least, even though Abijah is not doing right, the people of Judah at this time seemed to be focused on doing what's right, so they cried out to the Lord for deliverance. It says the Lord struck the army of Jeroboam and they fled before the men of Judah. So God is the one who gave them the victory. And he struck them. Now how did he strike them? The text doesn't get into clear indication of how he did. But he sets the army on flight and they run from the men of Judah and are killed. In fact, the text tells us that the men of, excuse me, the men of Judah killed 500,000 men from the army of Jeroboam. So remember, Jeroboam is attacking with 800,000 men against 400,000. But because the Lord has given them the victory, the Lord has struck the army, they're running, they're fleeing, Judah then kills 
500,000 of them from the army of Jeroboam. Abijah captured cities in Ephraim, and Jeroboam did not recover strength and arms again. So in the remaining years of Jeroboam's reign, he was not able to muster the military again to confront Judah, to battle Judah. In fact, he lost territory. He lost cities in Ephraim. And they would now become a part of the kingdom of Judah. Now, the text then goes on and tells us, we already know that Jeroboam dies because we talked about that last week, but the Lord struck Jeroboam and he died. So the text is making you very clear that Jeroboam dies because the Lord struck him, period. Now, the text will go on and tell us a little bit about their families. We know this, we're going to see this very often, is that Abijah married 14 wives and fathered 22 sons and 16 daughters. So he had 14 wives. Not as many as the 700 that his grandfather had, but he's got 14, he has lots of sons and lots of daughters. Now the chronicler, if we go over to Chronicles, and the writer, the writer of 1 Kings, tells the reader where the acts of Abijah are recorded in both sections of the scripture. One will actually refer to the book of Kings, but Chronicler is the one who does that, but Abijah is also uh, referred to in other books which are we do not have but are recorded here for you and I to see. And it says that Abijah died and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Basically, he was placed in the tomb of his fathers. Now, we come to 1 Kings chapter 15 now, verse 9 through 24, as well as 2 Chronicles chapter 14 through chapter 16, verse 14, which is a large section that deals with the next heir of Judah, the next king of Judah, which is Abijah's son, Asa. And Asa became king when his father Abijah died and the land was quiet for 10 years. Now when it talks about the land being quiet, that's mentioned both here in 1 Kings as well as in 2 Chronicles. Basically, it's talking about that there was no disturbance in the land because of sin. The land was quiet. Everything was peaceful when he became king. And, he, and this was for about 10 years during the reign of Abijah. Now that's going to change. We're going to see why that changes later. But Asa now becomes king. It says he reigned for 41 years in Jerusalem and his grandmother was Makkah. Remember the daughter of Absalom? Why do they keep mentioning this? Well, we're going to see why here soon. But Asa basically reigns for 41 years. Now, compared to the, compared to the kings of Israel, folks, that's a long time. That is stability. Now, here's what it says. Remember I told you that Abijah did what was evil as he walked in the ways of his father and not in the ways of David? Well, here's what it says about Asa. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord 
just as David had done. So what we see here is he's doing the right thing. Now you say, just as David had done. Boy, didn't David do some stupid things? Yes, but recognize something. It's the issue of God's grace and the issue of his heart. His heart was after the Lord. That's why David is talked about in this way here. And Asa walked in accordance with his grandfather's ways. Now, here's what he did. He basically cleans house, literally. So he cleansed the altars of the foreign gods, high places, and sacred pillars. Now, remember, it started with his great-grandfather, Solomon. Solomon built these places on all these high places, built these altars to these foreign gods because of his many foreign wives, and they had these sacred pillars, the Ashtaroth poles from the Canaanite gods, and they're throughout the land. So Asa comes along, Rehoboam does those things, worships at them. Bijah didn't do anything about it, but Asa comes along, and Asa cleanses the land of this stuff. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord and observe the law and commandments. Now, why would he do that? Well, if you think about it, for the latter part of Solomon's reign, Solomon's chasing after the Lord, they're being duplistic in, in Judah at this point. Yes, there are those who are following the Lord, but they're also worshiping in the high places and at the poles, the sacred poles of Ashtaroth and, and worshiping, burning incense to all of these foreign gods and so forth. And, and Rehoboam is doing this. Abijah has continued on with this. Well, Asa comes along and he's trying to get the people back to the Lord. Well, the way to get back to the Lord is destroy all these other places and turn them back to the God of Yahweh through what? The law and commandments, which are the Torah, the first five books of what we would call the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. So, again, the scripture tells us he removed the high places and incense altars from all the cities of Judah. So he just didn't do this in Jerusalem. He did this throughout all of the cities. He is doing a major cleansing, trying to get the people, get the kingdom back to worshiping the Lord. And again, the scripture tells us, now we already know it was quiet for 10 years. Well, the narr narrator is telling us, the writer is telling us the results of Asa's reforms are that the land was quiet during his reign for 10 years. Because he had done this, because he had was turning the focus of the kingdom back to uh, the reality of God, and worshiping him and removing the false gods and removing any trace of that, the land was quiet during his reign. Now, while the land rested, he fortified the cities of Judah. Now, he, this is just wise leadership. They live in a pretty volatile area there in what is today modern Israel or Palestine, and it's in, in that day, it still was an area where there were armies, Philistines and so forth, who would come and try to conquer. We've already seen that in the past already with the Ethiopians trying to do this. 
and the land rested and was fortified uh, the cities of Judah. Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah and 280,000 men from Benjamin. So he's got a combined army of 580,000 men from both of the tribes. Now, again, I mentioned the Ethiopians are coming. Well, here, Zerah the Ethiopian came against Judah with an army. Are you ready for this? An army of one million and 300 chariots. So one million foot soldiers and 300 chariots came with this army to attack Judah and Jerusalem. Asa went out against him with his army. So again, remember, he's going against one million with 580,000 men. So Asa went out against him with his army and cried out to the Lord for deliverance. So he's crying out to God, God, deliver us. So the text tells us that the Lord struck the Ethiopians and they fled before Asa and his army. So again, just as he did with the army of the northern kingdom of Israel by striking them, the Lord strikes the Ethiopians and they fled before Asa and his army. So Asa and his army plundered the enemy of much spoil and livestock. Now, again, you might be wondering, where, you know, armies come together, what's, what's the livestock for? Well, when you talk about a million men, you got to feed a million men. So when you feed a million men, yeah, you pillage from the lands that you're going through, but you also bring stocks of food and animals to feed people. So when they lose the battle, Israel swoops down and takes the plunder of all that they've left but also takes the animals, the livestock. Now, as we go on in chapter 15 and in, in Chronicles, we're going to see that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Azariah and he spoke to Asa. Azariah is a prophet. He said that the Lord was with them and will be found by them if they seek them. Now, folks, this is repeated often throughout the scripture that if we seek the Lord, if you genuinely seek the Lord, he will be found by you. Yes, I know this is a narrative, but this is something that is mentioned throughout the scripture concerning seeking God. God is saying to Asa and the nation, if you seek me, I will be found by you. That's a reality that even you and I can hold on to. But here's what he says. But if they forsake the Lord, the Lord will forsake them. So if they forsake the Lord, if they turn away from the Lord, God's going to turn away from them. And he reminded Asa what it was like when lawlessness existed in the nation. Now, what, when you read this, you're like, what period is he talking about? Folks, I think what the Lord is referring to is the period of lawlessness that existed during the period of the judges. 
And so he reminds Asa what it was like when lawlessness existed in the nation. And so he wants to encourage Asa to continue on. So Asa was to continue in his work and be strong in his efforts. He was to continue in his work, keep doing what he's doing, cleanse the land, bring the people back to him, and be strong in his efforts. Now, why would he say be strong? Well, I'm sure there was some opposition. When you have folks that have turned away from the Lord, even though he's king and they're going to do what he says, I'm sure he's getting some kind of opposition, but God is telling him to continue on. And so then the text tells us that Asa took courage from the words and removed the idols from the kingdom. So he removed the idols from the kingdom. He also restored the bronze altar at the temple. A better word to be used for restored here might also be repaired. So if you remember, that was the main altar. It was in front of the temple. That's where they would make the burnt offerings to the Lord, the priests would. It obviously had fallen into some sort of disrepair. Asa restores the bronze altar in the temple, maybe even restoring the use of it for its proper sacrifices. Asa called an assembly, and they came from all over Judah and Israel to him. Now remember why Jeroboam instituted his golden calves that were in Dan and in Bethel? He wanted to keep the northern kingdom from going to the Lord in Jerusalem because that's where the temple was. That was where they were supposed to go several times a year. And that's why he instituted this false system in Israel so that the people would quit going there. Well, here's Asa. He's a godly king. He calls an assembly, and they come from all over Judah and Benjamin, but they also come from Israel to him when they hear the call to come for a sacred assembly. And they sacrificed numerous animals and made a covenant with the Lord. And this is not just any covenant, folks. It says that anyone who transgressed this would die. This is a serious matter that they're entering into. It also says that he removed sexually deviant persons from the land. Now, we're not just going to focus on any one group, but anything from prostitutes to whatever, ritual prostitutes and so forth, it goes on and makes it very clear that he has removed all of these sexual immorality people involved with it are removed from the land. And he does something that is very, very interesting. He removed his grandmother, Makah, as the queen mother because she made an idol. So she had this title, so she had some sort of authority being the queen mother. This is probably something that was instituted when Abijah, his father, was king. But she has some sort of role here. But Asa, because of his strength, and now you understand why the Lord is encouraging him to be strong and do what he needs to do. It's going to take, think about the family problems that are going on here. When you rise up and strip your grandmother of her position, because she has built, and the text tells you, an Asheroth pole, a fertility god. 
This is what's going on here. But it tells you very clearly that the cleansing was not complete. What do you mean it wasn't complete? It says that the high places were not removed from Israel. That's the only thing that didn't happen. You say, well, it said earlier that he removed the high places. Yeah, in Judah, but the high places in Israel still remained. They were not removed. <clears throat> and then it also goes on and tells you that Asa then brought the dedicated items of silver and gold into the treasury of the Lord. We see that Solomon did this as well. And obviously there was a collection again, and there were items that were dedicated to the Lord, and he makes sure that they are brought into the treasury of the Lord at the temple. Now, the writer records that there was war between Basha, who is king of Israel, we'll talk about him a little bit later, and Asa during their reigns. So we see that there's this king named Basha. We're going to find out a little bit about him a little bit later. He is the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, and there is war between the two. And Asa is, I guess, concerned. Why? Well, here's what's going on. Basha rebuilt Ramah, which would be in the northern kingdom, to stop people from going to Asa in Judah. So remember, this was the concern that Jeroboam had. Jeroboam had the concern that the people would go down to Jerusalem to worship. And that's why he instituted these, this false system with its own, go own gods as well as with its own priests and so forth to keep the people in festivals at the same time that mirrored the festivals in Jerusalem to keep the people from going there. But that's not working with a godly king like Asa. So Basha wants to rebuild Ramah kind of as a place to stop the people from traveling down to Asa. So Asa took all that was in the treasuries of the temple and the kingdom and sent them to Syria. When you read this, you're like, what in the world? He just put them in the treasuries of the temple. That was a wonderful thing. Now he's taking it? What's going on here? Well, he did this to form an alliance against Basha, who then stopped rebuilding Ramah. The reason why he did this is because he wants to form a military alliance with Syria. He's not relying on the Lord now. now th this is what blows your mind. The Lord gave him victory over the Ethiopian, opium, Zira, the Ethiopian, and his million-man army. Here we have Basha, who's in the northern kingdom. He doesn't have a million-man army. But Asa, I don't know, maybe he's getting older or something, decides he's got to enter into this military agreement. How do you get into a military agreement? You send him gold and silver. Where's that going to come from? Well, from the treasuries of the temple as well as the treasuries of the kingdom. And when this military alliance happened, Basha stopped rebuilding Ramah. He figured there's no use doing this. Now here's what happens, and this is one of those chapters that you and I have to shake our head at because it's kind of like, are you kidding me? Yes. The prophet Hananiah came to Asa and rebuked him for relying on Syria against Basha. Of course the prophet would do that. 
coming with a message from the Lord, telling him, you know what, what are you doing? You have done wrong. You're not relying on the Lord. You're relying on Assyrian. He stated that the Lord was searching for those whose hearts are loyal for him. Again, this is another historical record that reflects a great truth that God is searching for those whose hearts are loyal to him. God is wanting people who are wanting to follow him. He stated that Asa had acted foolishly and there would be wars against Judah. Now up to this point, remember there was quiet in the land. We've already seen that being mentioned several times now. Now that quietness is going to disappear because there's going to be wars. God is going to bring an oppressor. We say, well, he's not worshiping idols. Yes, but he's still rejecting God for something else. In this instance, for the might of the Syrians to get, bring deliverance against Bashar. Now, We've seen how David responded to the rebuke of Nathan when he is confronted about his sin with Bathsheba. Let, let's just be honest. You would assume that maybe Asa would humble himself here. Well, that's not what the text tells us. Becoming upset with the prophet, Asa had him imprisoned and oppressed others as well. This is why we know it's the word of God. God's word just doesn't sugarcoat everything. You would think here's a man of God, heart, heart after uh, the Lord, serves the Lord in the ways of his great-grandfather David. But here we see he gets irritated, doesn't like being rebuked, throws the messenger in jail, and he's oppressing others. Who would the others be? Well, people probably connected with the prophet who had been pronouncing the judgment. So here's what happens, and you've got to wonder, because the text then goes on and tells you that in the 39th year of his rule, Asa became diseased in his feet, and he did not seek the Lord. Well, what do you mean he did not seek the Lord? Well, he didn't seek the Lord for help. How do I know that? Because the text tells you he sought doctors instead. Rather than relying on the Lord, so as he's getting older, 39th year, he's only going to reign for 41, so as he's getting to the end of his reign, he's no longer looking to the Lord. That tells you something here, folks. You can start out strong and end up in a bad place. And that's what we see here with Asa. Asa died in the 41st year of his rule, and he was buried in his own tomb that he had built. Remember, the others were buried with their fathers. This one says he died with his fathers, but he was buried in his own tomb. He obviously, after being in 41 years, decided to build him his own mausoleum, his own tomb to put his own bones in. So now we come to verse 25 through verse 32 of chapter 15, and we're going to talk about the kings of Israel. And we're going to go through several of them. Now, the first one is a guy by the name of Nadab. Now, I've entitled this section The House of Jeroboam. Because you remember, when we looked at this last week, there was a, excuse me, there was a judgment pronounced against Jeroboam that said that everyone in his household would die. 
And obviously Jeroboam died, but that meant his sons. He would not be a dynasty. Well, when we come to 1 Kings 15, verse 25 through 32, Nadab became king over Israel after the death of his father, Jeroboam, and he reigned two years. Now, Abijah reigned two years and died. He died a natural death, supposedly. Here we're going to see, with the northern kingdom, they may have had short reigns, but it wasn't because of natural death. And what we see here is, is Nadab is only king for two years. And again, notice the designation. You're going to see this with every king from the north. He did evil in the sight of his in the sight of the Lord and followed in the ways of his father, Jeroboam. So he's continuing on in the sins of Jeroboam. And the main thing is that they're leading the people away from the Lord. He did evil. Now it says that Bashah killed Nadab as they lay siege against the Philistines. So the northern kingdom must have been in some sort of conflict with the Philistines. They're in an area where they're laying siege to a Philistine community, a city. And while this besieging is going on, while this siege is happening, Bashah kills Nadab as they lay siege. Now, it says that Bashah then destroyed all the house of Jeroboam and left none alive. Now, why would he do that? Well, anyone who would be left alive would become a threat later. So that's why they eliminated everyone. Now this fulfilled the prophecy of Abijah against the household of Jeroboam. So the household, the dynasty of Jeroboam ends one generation after Jeroboam and it only lasted two years. Direct fulfillment of what God said would happen. And the writer tells the reader where the record of Nadab's rule was written. Must have been a short record if you consider he only reigned for two years, but he tells you where the rule is outlined, what book it is recorded in. Now that brings us to 1 Kings chapter 15 through 33, verse 33 through 1 Kings 16, verse 7, and the rule of Bashah. Now Bashah became king over Israel and reigned over Israel 24 years. So he's got a little bit longer than the other guys, kind of like the 20 years that Jeroboam had. But he reigns for 24 years. And again, notice the designation here. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed in the ways of Jeroboam. Now, he, these guys don't learn anything from the prior kings, do they? And they sure don't learn anything from the judgments that are rendered against them and the fulfillment of those judgments. And Bashah did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed in Jeroboam's ways. Now, there was a prophet named Jehu. Jehu, the prophet, proclaimed judgment against Bashah and his household. The Lord stated that he had raised Bashah from the dust and made him king. Now, what that means is he basically took Bashah from nowhere. Meaning he has no background. He's not an aristocratic family or an elder or anything. He just came out of nowhere and he's made king. The Lord will make the house of Bashah like the house of Jeroboam. 
That's a statement of judgment, meaning everybody in your household is going to die. The writer tells the reader where the record of Bashaw's rule was written. So again, he's letting us know where we can find the record of his rule. Then that leads us to Bashaw's son, who is Elah. Now notice a pattern here. Elah became king over Israel when his father Bashaw died, and he ruled two years. So again, he's only going to rule for two years now. His servant, Zimri, killed him and his entire household. So he had a servant. And it doesn't, like before when we saw Jeroboam, he was some sort of officer in, uh, in Solomon's court. But here we see a guy who's just a servant. He kills the king, Elah, in accordance with the prophecy and his entire household. And the record tells the writer tells the readers where the record of Elah's rule was written. Two years. Again, that's pretty brief. Well, yeah, it's pretty brief, but we're going to see one that's even briefer. Who's that? The guy who just killed Elah. Z Zimri. It says this, that Zimri only ruled over Israel for seven days. That's got to be the shortest kingdom we've seen so far, right? Seven days? I'm going to tell you right now, there are probably people in the northern kingdom that didn't even know he was king. News wouldn't have traveled that fast. He was only king for seven days. Israel, that is the leaders of Israel, made Omri king because Zimri conspired against Elah. So because there was a conspiracy that eliminated the king, the people didn't support it. Rather, they then turn around and make a guy by the name of Omri king because Zimri conspired against Israel, against Elah. Now here's what happens. He reigns only seven days. So these folks who are following Omri, they surround Zimri in the citadel of the king's house and he burned it down around him. He basically killed himself by burning down the citadel around him. He wasn't going to be captured, uh, but he still ended up dead. Now, the writer tells the reader where the record of Zimri's treason was written. So notice now, there's not like really a big discussion here going on about his rule. It only lasted seven days. But they're talking about his treason. They're looking at him as a treacherous wretch who had killed the king. And he's telling us, the record is telling us where we can find the record of his, of his deeds of treachery. Well, you say, okay, now Omri is king. Well, it's not that easy. The people of Israel were divided into two groups following Omri or Tibni. So what ends up happening is, is that the northern kingdom becomes divided between really two political factions, people who are supportive of Omri as king and people who are supportive of another guy by the name of Tibni. In a way, they almost have civil war now. They've created a situation where they're struggling against each other. And the people of Omri prevailed over the groups supporting Tibni. 
So the one group was stronger and they prevailed, and that was Omri. So Tibni died, and Omni ruled as Omri ruled as king for twelve years. Twelve years he rules as king. Now we see some interesting things happening here that are going to give light later on. Omri, he purchased the hill of Samaria for two talents of silver and built the city Samaria. Now this city is going to become significant later on through kings because this becomes the capital of the northern kingdom. And it's called the kingdom of Samaria in a lot of places because of this. So Omri is the one who purchased the hills of Samaria to build this city for two talents of silver. It also records what kind of guy Omri was. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, typical for these kings. But listen to this. And was worse than the kings before him. Wow, what a judgment here. I mean, he's not just doing evil, walking in the ways of Jeroboam. He actually did far worse than those guys. This is a pretty wicked dude. And his sin caused Israel to sin, which provoked the Lord to anger. So the anger of the Lord is aroused because this king is leading the nation into sin. And the writer tells the reader where the record of Omni's rule was written. So there's a record somewhere. It's lost to us of what his rule was like. It says that when Omri died, he was buried in Samaria and his son Ahab became king. And that's where we're going to end today. So here we go. We see ending up that all of the kings so far in Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, are just plain bad. And now we've seen a guy who's been even worse, Omri. But I'm going to tell you, folks, he, in light of his son, he's probably a saint. Because what happens next is we are introduced to the most wicked king Israel ever had, a man by the name of Ahab. And his life has implications, not just for the northern kingdom, but also for the southern kingdom. And with that, we're going to be introduced to one of the greatest prophets ever written in the scripture. And that is the prophet Elijah.